time zone. I'm Kelvin. I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. I'm Ariel. And you're listening to Get Off My World, the podcast of uh, people who love the old series of Doctor Who and do sometimes, with exceptions, (laughs) enjoy the new series as well. And uh, we do get kind of grumpy and curmudgeonly about Doctor Who at times, as does any fan. That's part of being a fan. But uh, to keep it from getting too thick, uh, we like to start with something we call temporal grace, which is a thing where we say something that we've encountered recently that was related to Doctor Who in some way and, and made us feel you know, a little warm inside our frozen icy hearts. <laughs> so who wants to go first? I will say that I really like the new composer for the new series. Last episode, I was a little hard on the first half of the new series. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't make me replay your rant. Like you're exempt, yes. <laughs> Pat is pointing at the name of the new composer, and he doesn't know how bad my glasses are, so I can't read it's his name. Second Akinola. That no. guy. I love, or Sagoon Akinola. I love sure. the incidental music. I love the new arrangement of the theme song. It might be my favorite opening theme of any of the new series. I think a good incidental musician, you should almost not be aware of it. Absolutely. Right? And, Absolutely. and Murray Gold just slapped you about the face and it took you out Here's of the story. Here's what you should feel with this yes. musical score. Just grabbed you by the lapels and shook you. And I think there's a lot of nice little stuff in here and it's appropriate and small and grand when it needs to be. So yeah, I'm really happy with that. It's funny, I'm going to piggyback on that and say that my favorite little thing is I like the look of the opening. Mm -hmm. It's totally different. It's all gooey and webby. I've not seen that look for an opening before, and I really enjoyed that. But it's mirroring, at the beginning at least, the uh, original title sequence that had the kaleidoscope sure, almost sure. quality of like the sticky. two matching yeah, sides. Like it makes yeah. me think of like that sticky stuff that kids play with that somehow doesn't get on your hands and yeah. yet it sticks to itself. <laughs> like it's just oozy. I don't know. I just yeah, I like And it a it's lot. really pretty and it matches the theme very well. Well, so for my temporal grace, uh, you know, recently it's uh, it was Halloween around these parts. I don't know where it was in other parts, but uh, <laughs> uh, so Carrie and I watched the Netflix uh, Adaptation of Shirley Jackson's novel *The Haunting of Hill House*, adapted by a guy named Mike Flanagan, who's kind of an up-and-comer in the horror world, I guess. Uh, we both really liked it, and we recommend that everybody watch it. But uh, it also appears that uh, Mr. Flanagan is a Doctor Who fan. He uh, recently made a movie called *Oculus*, 
which starred Karen Gillan and uh, Katie Sackhoff from Battlestar Galactica. And there's an interview online where he's talking about what a crazy Doctor Who fan he is. And so he wrote the part essentially for Karen Gillan. And he was, oh, I really hope she, I hope she's going to do it. And he fanboyed all over the place. Uh, then when he got around to writing The Haunting of Hill House, there's a line that the Car- that Carla Gugino's character says, when we die, we turn into stories, and every time someone tells one of those stories, it's like we're still here for them. We're all stories in the end, which is explicitly a lift from what Matt Smith's doctor uh, says to Amelia Pond in The Big Bang. Wow. So that was kind of a nice little, little call dirty. out there. Yeah. yeah. Mine is another Big Finish thing. Big Finish is coming out with audio adventures that are all women characters from Doctor Who. And I, I believe it's like four unrelated stories, but it's four stories, and it involves people like Ace, uh, Madame Vastra, uh, Kate Lethbridge, Stewart, Osgood, River Song, and other figures I can't think of. Lila? Right Lila is one of them. Yeah. But yeah, that's coming out, and I believe it's called the 8th of March. And I don't know what the significance of that date is exactly, but <laughs> Pat's got the laptop. At the ready. At the ready, so he's going to try and figure out what the significance of the 8th of March is. It's not the 5th of November. Uh, no, but it was the uh, Battle of Hausbergen between bourgeois militias and the army of the Bishop of Strasbourg. And well, well, that clearly must be it. <laughs> yeah. Kelvin. <laughs> I mean, everybody in the room knew that but you, but most of us were just being nice. I am such a Bishop of Strasbourg fanboy, too. I mean, I, I don't know. You've got BOS on your knuckle. <laughs> it's also the day in 1966 when uh, Nelson's Pillar was destroyed by an IRA bomb. Oh. oh. In Dublin. And Big Finish is finally commemorating it. <laughs> <laughs> and now round two special topics, Dalek. And I'm going to bring a special topic to the table today. And uh, last episode we talked about the first five episodes of Jodie Whittaker's premiere season, and we spoke often about the fact that she has three companions, and so I wanted to discuss a little bit about how three companions have traditionally worked in Doctor Who, has it worked in Doctor Who in the past, and how we might see the new series use that many characters in the future in a possibly better way than they have so far. And to go over the previous companions that have been grouped in threes, uh, obviously the original, which I think Chibnall's nodding toward, is Barbara, Ian, and Susan. And then we trade out Susan for Vicky for a short amount of time. But then we go uh, down to two companions for quite a while until we hit the second Doctor. And we have Ben, Polly, and Jamie. And then we have to jump all the way to the very end of Tom Baker's era. And we can possibly consider Adric, Romana, and K9 oh so briefly as a trio of companions. And then we jump to the fifth Doctor, who we probably, I think most people outside of the first Doctor associate with having the, the those Doctor multiple, having a big group yeah. of companions. And we have Adric, Nissa, and Tegan, and then trade out briefly uh, for Turlo with Tegan and Nissa. And that's it. Up to right that's now. It's all right now. Yeah. Um, I think. The what makes it the most successful, and we could probably all talk about which scenarios, but is when each either each of them has their own function. They have to each have something 
dynamic that they bring to the group. Um, or you just end up with, like, the shadow character, which we're afraid of a little bit for Yaz, just kind of trailing along behind everybody. But I actually really loved the original combination with Barbara and Ian and my brain just died. Susan. Susan. Um, Because you actually have a two and two at first. You know, you have the two Earth humans versus the two non-humans. And you also have this range of ages and perspectives via age. So I really like the contrast of that group a lot, especially at the beginning. That initial group was explicitly a family model, too, which is, I think, a useful lens through which to view some of the later groupings. Because you had the grandfather, you had the father and mother characters, essentially, Ian and Barbara, and then the young child. And you could see at the beginning of the show, they were tentative about stepping away from that model, because when Susan left, they replaced her with essentially the same role. They replaced yeah. Vicky with mm-hmm. that. And then they were they started to experiment with the dynamics more. And especially when Hartnell changed into a completely different person, then all bets were off and different right. combinations could occur. I think that I remember thinking that it was incredibly progressive for its time because Barbara was not just a housewife. She was a teacher. Like that yeah, that yeah. was a big thing, I mm-hmm. think, for, for I have a lot time. to say about Barbara later in this episode, I think. Yeah, because she's one of my favorites. Yeah, and she fulfills almost immediately, a, like you said, Ariel, a very specific role. She is the heart and the conscience of that group of people. And you have Ian, who is the strong man, the guy who's willing to do the, the, the dirty tough work. things and to make the hard calls. And again... Susan is a little... She's the idealist. In between. She's that like your family model. She's the young character who needs to learn from these three other characters. Yeah, the Ben Polly jamie thing is, I think, probably accidental. I'm not sure that they ever really intended to have Fraser Hines as a recurring character when they cast him in The Highlanders, but he was just so charismatic, and I think at that point... They got um, a lot of letters saying, Co- hey, we sure like that guy. Yeah, and Annika Wills and, and, and Michael Craze were probably half considering going, or maybe they had already quit at that time. So I think that's why they brought uh, that weird little dynamic there. But that doesn't obviously fit into a family model. It's more like a co-worker model or something, or um, you've got a boss and then the employees. And by the time you get to Peter Davison, mm-hmm. uh, it's a family model again, but it's more like siblings. I think mm-hmm. there's like an older sibling with Peter Davison. That's the next part of the show where they are intentionally choosing to have long-term three companions. It's not an accident. It's not just a brief overlap while we write another character out. Or K-9, which is more of a tool than a character half yeah. the time. <laughs> you just called K-9 a tool. I did. <laughs> He would not object. <laughs> Stop being such a tool, canine. <laughs> yes, master. <laughs> but Adric, as the annoying little brother, is mm-hmm. he clearly fills that role, and the loving sisters, and it gets gets warped when Adric dies, and then when Turlo comes in, who's they're specifically trying to do something unusual he's, there. He's, he's the suspicious stepbrother. <laughs> he's the he's the cuckoo or yeah. something. Yeah. 
I just only had the thought of the trio that I would have liked to have seen that we didn't see. It's a little off topics. But what if Mel, Sablon, Glitz, and Ace had all traveled? <laughs> <laughs> that would kind of nuts. You know, a big finish has gone back for that, and they are doing a extended series of episodes uh, with Mel and Ace, where the Seventh Doctor comes back and finds her after her life with glitz and so a more hardened mature version of mel and that is kind of interesting i'm sure they would do glitz as well but the actor has passed away and they didn't want to recast him i never could just as a sideline i never could quite get that cephalon glitz was a monster he sold his entire crew into slavery (laughs) slavery is a mass murderer and why did mel decide like i'm gonna go out you remember how he looked like a good project to her oh yeah (laughs) i could fix him i could make him better yeah, right. that always works out so well. You remember how they yeah. retconned that in the New Adventures, though? Oh, is that the Seventh Doctor? Because oh, it's, it was all part of the away. games he was playing. He knew he needed to take Ace, uh, right. and he did some sort of mind trick on her. Was I'm the idea that he go. basically said, uh, you want to go with... Uh, the closest Blitz. man at hand yeah. happens to be a criminal monster. Yep, and... There's, a, you know, like all new adventures, some dark reckoning later when he meets up with Mel. <laughs> uh, but you're right, that is a little bit of a sidetrack about <laughs> companions. <laughs> but as I'm watching the new series, you really see how the 50-minute running time is a problem with that many companions. Yeah. In the original series, you could split them up and have more mm-hmm. subplots that could sustain all those characters than you can in a 50-minute time slot. And we're obviously past the point uh, where an audience is going to accept the obvious uh, narrative ruse of like, ah, she sprained her ankle, or she's got space sickness, so that's why they're not in this episode. So, uh, well, They do that every now and then when they sidelined uh, Donna in Midnight, I think, right? They just kind of yep. took her off the table, but that's unusual. I feel like it's never been as successful as that original TARDIS crew. And that's what everyone's trying to imitate unsuccessfully, and it seems like they go back to it like on a, like a 20-year cycle. I would almost... Uh, take Yaz out of the equation, even though I like having another woman there. Mm-hmm. Like, I would just take it down to the, the grandfather-grandson duo I like with the, Jody. I like the actor. It's just that she's been very underserved in the yeah. first five she episodes. We, we met her family and that was the best. she speaks, frankly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They haven't I, done anything with her yet. I did like her in Rosa, specifically because she had... Well, she had more to do. In fact, all of the companions had something important to do in Rosa. She had the ethnic ambiguity to be able to kind of wobble in both ways. Actually, I was just about to say that was the problem that I didn't bring up in Rosa, is that to those people in that time, doesn't she look black? She looks Mexican. They specifically said she looks Mexican. Does the Mexican get to sit in the white section? Like, I was super confused at this privilege she seemed to have. That struck me as fairly true to life. I think, because there are, in rigid social racial hierarchies like that, there are going to be these people who are kind of like... Well, you're clearly not black, but you're clearly not white either. So she'll sit in the middle of the bus and no one will really say too much when she's talking to either the front or the back people. But she can still show up with Jodie Whittaker to give the Sinatra tickets to the dude and nobody's going to be like, don't talk to me. You know what I mean? So I don't know. But her race worked pretty well, I thought, in Rosa. This is, again, a sideline. But but Rosa, I thought, was a good example of the new series using its three companions. None of them seem superfluous, uh, especially not Yaz, who 
often seem superfluous in the new show. Is there a family dynamic in the new Jodie Whittaker stuff? I think the issue I have with it is I don't know exactly who the doctor is yet, and that comes back to the crowded TARDIS syndrome of I don't feel like Jodie Whittaker has had enough space to establish who she is as a figurehead in this family. She's not the mom. She's the, everybody's exciting best friend. The wacky neighbor. Yeah. 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 Like their wacky aunt, maybe. And it, it, it goes back <laughs> to these companions want to escape their situations, and they're enamored with her in some way, but we haven't established a strong relationship with the Doctor. I think that's part of the ambiguity. And it is, in all fairness to the season, it's only five episodes in. It's but only it, 50% done. You're right. <laughs> it feels like that is the missing component. And it almost feels like they kind of need to do three episodes where they have an episode where the doctor has mm-hmm. their special time. Like when you have a lot of kids, you need to have, this is my day with this kid, and this is my day with this kid. Um, But seriously, I think the viewers have to see what the doctor's relationship is and see that bond to create this family. They're telling us, but they're not showing us. Right. Mm -hmm. I am really hopeful that there's not going to be any hooking up amongst the companions. Because that gets questioned in arachnids like twice. Yeah, I mean, Graham and Ryan would not be a good couple. (laughs) Third round, the randomizer. Do, 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 do. Didn't the randomizer like roll really low this time? <laughs> it's it's almost as if it was chosen and yeah. not, and not uh, specifically random at all. Uh, but yeah, uh, you're right, Kelvin. We it's very low. It's in fact episode one. We're going to talk about today or adventure one from season one, an unearthly child. Yeah, uh, with uh, three companions, Ian, Susan, and Barbara, right from the get go. And it makes a nice uh, companion ha, uh, episode to The Woman Who Fell to Earth, yeah. uh, which you guys talked about recently, Ariel, you and your crew, um, because they introduce from the get-go a new doctor into a new group of people who has no previous experience with the doctor at all, which is not something we've seen all that often on the show. They usually drag a companion or two along with them when they regenerate. Not always. But frequently. I have to say, you know, yes, I should be shamed for the fact that I've never seen this episode. But to be fair, like, I am also not computer savvy, so I didn't really know Daily Motion was a thing. I have tried to <laughs> attempt to purchase things and either not been able to find them or they've been too expensive and I've just gone forward with my life. You can always uh, borrow them from me. Okay, I know that now. <laughs> but I, I have to be honest, like, I, at first I was really excited, like a kid in a candy store, like, oh, there's, you know, my first introduction to Barbara, and the first time they say this, and the first time the TARDIS door opens, and the first trip starts with a kidnapping? Mm-hmm. Like, I was sort of, like, yeah. kind of disappointed. I was like, oh, morality-wise, this is real questionable, that, like, he only takes them because he doesn't want them to talk. Like, Yeah, it's a, it's a weird adjustment because the Doctor's almost the villain. Yeah. In the, his first appearance, you know, he's, like... Someone you're not really supposed to trust. and It's my favorite part of this, is mm-hmm. that the Doctor's truly a mysterious figure. We know nothing And that makes me wish I'd seen him. it when it came out, because <laughs> I already have such a relationship mm-hmm. with the Doctor that it feels traitorous mm-hmm. to what I think of as his character. That aspect of his character, to a certain degree, gets threaded through the rest of the series, as in we see other versions... <laughs> Of the Doctor 
behave with that level of selfishness, I guess. with that level of. But to think um, that that know, was that's, the introduction that's, to but him. But that's the fourth doctor booting Sarah out of the TARDIS to go back to Gallifrey. That's sort of another version of that. The doctor can be very cold and very selfish and very much worried about himself in the moment. And I've also read some other interpretations of that scene of the doctor sort of being intrigued by these two somewhat smart people who followed Susan back and, you know, this sort of retcon idea of, like, he kind of went, like, these guys might be fun to travel with, but I think that's a desperate attempt. Yeah, I think that's Um, a hard try. But this is clearly the Doctor who's not traveled a lot. I mean, they've retconned a lot in the series because he he clearly doesn't understand humans because Sarah at one point goes, I understand these people better than you. Uh, Because we're used to this doctor who champions Earth people and talks about how fantastic they are when he's not calling them apes. You know, it's the doctor. So he's either loving them or insulting them viciously. But this is a very skeptical and cynical version of the character. Well, you know, when I was doing the research for uh, this episode, I watched, as well as watching An Unearthly Child as it was broadcast, I watched the pilot, the unaired Mm -hmm. pilot version of the first episode of An Unearthly Child. And for the most part, they're very similar. It's the same script, mostly, although there are some lines of dialogue that have been changed or elided. Um, and the reason that, as I understand it, that they didn't broadcast the pilot is because there were just too many errors in it. Uh, Hartnell does make a lot of errors right off the bat, and the camera like knocks into things every now and then. Um, but what was striking to me was how mean the Doctor is. Mm-hmm. He is playing it like a villain. He's like a sinister creepy old man in a haunted house and when you see the broadcast version of it elements of that are still there but it's much more toned down Mm -hmm. he's giggly a little bit more he's more whimsical the same lines are delivered in a more sardonic and affectionate way instead of a really mean-spirited tone like when the original pilot yeah 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 yeah, when he electrocutes ian on the console for example yeah it's like very Shocking! I, it's, it's very, uh, uh, it's startling. Well, I they guess. also they also changed Susan a lot. Susan was originally much more like icy and emotionless and alien, and she wore like a mini skirt and leggings. And she does a spacey modern dance, and 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 and, and, they, and they realized like, oh, this is coming off way too sexy. Yeah, she's supposed to be fifteen. Right. There's and, a huge difference between that pilot and the final one in that shot of her doing the hand dance while she's listening to the common men mm-hmm. and in the pilot there's this weird shot where it just zeroes in just on her midsection her hips. and yeah. hips and her hand waving around and just lingers there for a really kind of uncomfortable amount of time and i accidentally on the dvd hit the pilot without realizing it mm-hmm. um and i was going I don't remember this. <laughs> that's that's the shot that made me realize, oh, I'm watching the pilot. Yeah, uh, For me, because uh, it, it was an accident for me, too, yeah. I recognized it a little bit earlier because I didn't remember the flashing lights over the creepy clown heads in I Am Foreman's <laughs> junkyard. It's not the same camera angles, and it's not the same mm-hmm. uh, props distributed. So, like, the, oh, why is that creepy clown head glowing over the police box? Oh, it's the pilot. That's why. But I love that opening shot where the theme music keeps playing and the cop walking by and that slow pan over the junk to the TARDIS. And it's really hard to go back in time and try to imagine... What it was like to watch 
that having no idea what this is and it had to be really creepy and mysterious because it it still Whereas feels that creepy same and mysterious I had is watching arachnids oh it's another opening with a police officer yeah. <laughs> you know because you can only rewrite things so many times I'm just trying to figure out like what it, you know a British person in 1963 would think of that scene would like it be like completely ordinary or, or weird yeah, like, like, like yeah, you, you, he mentions that it's strange yeah like the TARDIS isn't an icon yet it's not even a known thing yet so the chameleon circuit is still not quite working right, even though it breaks once they land in 10,000 BC, because that yeah. seems like an odd choice for the chameleon circuit in the middle of a junkyard as a police right. box. So it's still a little off. It's yeah, still, maybe it's, they landed somewhere and they picked it up and they moved yeah. it. it, 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 it but really, it's still right for its time, yeah. for the yeah. era in which yeah. it's appearing. It, it seems like... It's the last this gasp is, of the chameleon circuit. Yeah, like, like this totally is breaks. right when the TARDIS just kind of breaks really badly. Retcon-wise, that's why like Ian and Barbara pass out when they go through time. Yeah, I've always yeah. wondered about that, too. Because that's, that's never done again. It's not a setup for a continuing show. It's a setup for like a science fiction movie. Yeah. It's something that would happen to characters who got mm-hmm. abducted by an alien in a science fiction movie. That seems to be the model that they're working on there. And of course, it doesn't happen ever again because that would get old pretty fast. It's kind of worth reminding me at least, you know, how far the show has come since 1963. Yeah. Uh, I pulled out this essay that Lance Parkin wrote for a book I edited quite a long time ago, and this is Lance Parkin, the uh, Doctor Who writer who we're going to have on our show at some point in the near future, and he's describing what it was like in 1963 and what it was like in 2007 when this essay was written. In 1963, the doctor was a mysterious old man accompanied by his kooky teenage granddaughter and a couple of school teachers. The doctor never interfered, only observed, and stated he was on a, quote, scientific expedition. Doctor Who on Television in 2007 is a series about an immortal alien who resembles a young man, the last of a race of Time Lords, who travels the universe on a moral crusade to fight monsters alongside a beautiful young woman with whom he shares a palpable sexual attraction. <laughs> so they're completely different shows yeah. linked together by commonalities like the TARDIS. Wow, that's kind of gross. No, just <laughs> like that. <laughs> yes, you just made my problem with the new series in like half a sentence. I was struck by thinking about cost and that sort of thing. That like I was like, why cavemen? And I was like, well, that's a pretty simple set. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not trying to build some elaborate other world. Really, mm-hmm. they just need to go film near some rocks. You know. And while I will say that this is not the most exciting episode no, of no, Doctor Who with no. the cavemen, I also think. It's sold a little short. I, I, think con- I agree. I think considering that some guy got stuck writing three episodes about a, a tribe of cavemen, there's a lot of great stuff in here. This sort of heightened Shakespearean quality <laughs> among these fighting cavemen that I think works in a lot of ways. It's maybe not three full episodes uh, worth no, by any means. No. Yeah, I really wonder what made them decide on like the Stone Age. Is like the first thing to visit. Because they can bring a modern sensibility. Like, I think they're setting it up to show that the Doctor is wiser than Mm -hmm. mankind. I think it's thematic. I think it's to place the Doctor at the beginning of human technological civilization. Mm -hmm. He gives them fire, fire. which is kind of the point zero of how human civilization evolves. And then on top of that, I believe Ian and Barbara give them human morality. 
by demonstrating that <laughs> the they don't... The young man he did not kill. Did he not told kill me him, his right? name. It was Friend. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's a Star Trek-y kind of thing, doesn't it? It's feel very like Star it should Trek-y, be an original yeah. Star Trek kind they, of thing. Well, I, I like when, when Zah is trying to make fire at first, and he doesn't quite know how it works, and he's like... Put more of the dead fire on it. Yep. <laughs> Just sprinkle ashes while he like rubs a bone over it. It's really Actually, weird. Actually, that whole second episode is pretty great, dialogue-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's that long political debate between <laughs> Cal, who's kind of a carpetbagger. He's not from yeah. the tribe, he's from somewhere else, and Zah, and Cal sees a political opportunity because Zah is just not living up to his father's reputation, and they're desperately trying to make more and more promises on either side. Oh, I'll, I'll kill bears for you. I'll kill so many bears for you tomorrow. You'll all have warm <laughs> skins. And then that gets mocked and whatever. And so it's a really fun scene to see how the audience kind of moves their sympathy from one it, to the other over the course of five minutes. It's fascinating how little change there is between Cro-Magnon politics <laughs> and like modern yeah, they even the, the tribe, one of them even says, I say there is truth in both of you. you yeah. know, there's this fine people <laughs> on both sides. <laughs> both make some good points. <laughs> well, right from the beginning, too, we get uh, what will turn out to be an endless series of Susan freakouts when the doctor is, is kidnapped. She just blows her top and goes crazy, although to be fair... Barbara does an even worse one. Yeah, which totally out of character for how she'll be. A uh, weird little thing that I enjoyed was that it was a man who got hurt that had to be put on a stretcher and carried away. Like, so often it is a woman who becomes the one who needs assistance, and I kind of enjoyed that it was the what dude. Was he? he was attacked by some unseen He was trying to kill a beast. Yeah, yeah, animal, yeah, yeah, we don't know what yeah. it is. I, I noticed, you know, and actually I noticed it in the new ones, too, but, like, the places where they don't want to build a set or a creature for it, so it just happens off screen. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I, not to suddenly lower the intellectual content of, of everything. <laughs> the fight scene in episode four was really cool. It was really intense. I'm surprised it's that surprising, made it the censors. It's surprisingly the, violent. In he seems to break his neck and then crush his head. With a mm-hmm. boulder, yeah. Yeah. I'd and call they it look, savage. <laughs> the shots of the doctor and the crew looking away. Yeah. And then, for some reason, I think the worst part of it is when he drags his dead body like the carcass of an animal. Yeah. Apparently that scene, that scene was not directed by Waris Hussain. A different person directed that scene, and I don't know if it was because Waris like didn't want to direct it, or if if he had directed something and they found it unacceptable somehow, and had someone else reshoot it. Or if they wanted I, to have a fight choreographer direct it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it could mm-hmm. be something mm-hmm. where he's just like, "This is really out of my league." It's a totally different mm-hmm. thing in this episode. Let's just bring in somebody with because, some experience in this. Yeah, yeah. Fight scenes in the first Doctor era are, are, are typically underwhelming because they had like one take budgets, you know. Yeah. And, and I think part of what sold this is that it had a lot of edits in it. Yeah, right? because usually what makes those um, fight scenes so slow is there's just like one long shot and you really see. And you can see them kind of uh, setting up like setting the, the up, blow yeah. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this one because they kept cutting between the extreme close-ups of the people watching it lit by fire. Yeah, and uh, cutting back to them, it felt a lot more modern than and a is lot this, of fights. Is this the dirtiest the TARDIS crew ever gets? It's they're pretty filthy. They're pretty dirty. Wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't, I mean, just actual physical dirt oh, yeah. on their bodies. I mean, it, like, you don't normally see them getting all sweaty and 
dirt grimed into their face and everything. Hartnell's hair is yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though some of their freakouts are out of character for the women and everything, one thing I like about this episode is that everyone is really committed to the drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like, we're going to yeah. sell the fact that this is a bunch of British guys in fur, yeah. and there's a lot of man thigh in this as they're rolling <laughs> around and fighting, but we're going to sell this Oh, yeah, 100%. the actors for the arguments, the, the woman. Um, the old woman? The old no, no, yeah. the young oh, woman. The young, oh, I love great. her performance. Yeah. She's they're phenomenal. really good. They're like just, it's really touching. I'm like, I don't think I could play a cave person without like having to bite the side of my cheek really, really hard through yeah. the whole thing. But you, my dear, you are you are selling <laughs> the crap out of it. It's it's so easy to do dumb cliched things if you're trying to play a Neolithic era. Right. But I think that's why right? what made me think of Shakespeare is that these are mm-hmm. all like British stage actors and they just give it that kind of heft. And pathos to it, even though they're supposed to be cavemen. I love the old mother. How conservative she is. We don't need fire. It'll kill us all. In my day, we go without fire. fire. We used to just burn ice. (laughs) (laughs) Did you heard of the ice volcanoes? We didn't have your fancy stone axes and fire and cave paintings. We had axes made of leaves, and we were fine with it. But the doctor really does crap on humanity in this episode. He really does. Like I think one of his one of his lines is like, "Your arrogance is almost as." good as your ignorance or you know children of my generation would be insulted by you you know i mean he just really you know when you think of how he comes to love humanity later i honestly like this version of the doctor i want a t-shirt that says i tolerate this century but i don't enjoy it (laughs) a picture of hartnell i would wear that yes could we just get that for like the group i would do it we'll sell it on etsy So for round four, our wonderful afunctionalism round, would you mind if I did something a little bit different? Ooh, tell us about it. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with Doctor Who, but it does have to do with podcasting. Oh. And I think, you know, after a couple of years of doing this, and we're all pals together, I, I can share this. You know, you know that I do spoken word stuff around town every now and then, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, a short while ago, I had the occasion to write a spoken word piece on the subject of dinosaurs. And looking around for inspiration, I thought, oh, how do we produce and consume podcasts? Because I have a certain amount of experience with that now. And I listen to podcasts all the time when I'm on the bus or I'm at the gym. So this is what I came up with. And so this is sort of my melancholy love letter to podcasting. So I hope this brings you all down. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to my co-presenters. And thank you to the Journal of Dubious Archaeology for sponsoring tonight's conference. Unfortunately, my topic for this evening has been unexpectedly attenuated, since my object of study seems no longer to exist, at least in a form amenable to peer review. I've spent the last several years documenting a certain podcast, which I'm sorry to report is now defunct, Although it did have a respectable run of 66 mostly twice-monthly episodes and a few specials. It was erudite and exuberant, and I confess I will miss listening to it. It was called The Love Lives of the Great Lizards, although the title was perhaps misleading. None of the three hosts were experts in paleontology, and dinosaurs served only as a metaphor or loose organizing principle for whatever the hosts wished to talk about that day. And these hosts, who were they? 
That is something of a question. We know their first names and their personalities are distinct, but it would take someone many hours of listening to discover much more about them. They recorded in Santa Monica, that was clear, although Franklin, the goofiest of the three, would often claim that they were broadcasting from the bubbling depths of the La Brea tar pits. Their first episode, called Triceratops, served as proof of concept. Having little to do with the actual dinosaur per se, the name, which translates as three-horned face, was an excuse to talk about famous trios in history. The Three Musketeers, the Holy Trinity, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, the Norns, the Fates, and of course the three hosts of the podcast themselves. The second episode, named for the thunder lizard Brontosaurus, was largely concerned with climate change, and the second season, Archaeopteryx, with early aviation practices. Occasionally inclusive of mammals, the hosts gave their discussion of giants in folklore the title Mammoth, and a wide-ranging discussion of apes they called Australopithecus. Certain episodes were particularly highbrow, such as the challenging Oviraptor, largely given over to a somewhat rambling and unclear precy of the field of contemporary philosophy known as object-oriented ontology, or speculative realism. After a few awkward initial episodes, the personalities began to emerge. From various offhand remarks, we know that Gary worked in the film industry, perhaps as a sound engineer. He was the one who recorded and edited the podcast. Of the three, he was the most committed to research, and his contributions were the most data-driven and rigorous. Diana had a background in philosophy and English, now and then reciting poems and short fiction of her own on the program. She loved the famously opaque poet John Ashbery, once reading his poem Dinosaur Country on the podcast, and was a rather disproportionate fan of Baby Boomer-era music. Her favorite album, Sgt. Pepper's, was such a conventional choice that the other two hosts turned it into a running joke with which to tease her. Franklin was a sort of court jester, able to hold his own in the discussion, but preferring to interject jokes and embroider absurdities upon the conversation. Current events were only infrequently discussed. A listener might get the sense that they were being deliberately avoided. Perhaps the hosts held contrasting social or political opinions? Maybe. But a few weeks after the November 2016 election, after missing a release date, an especially glum-sounding trio returned to crack pointed jokes about dinosaurs walking the earth again, about fossils, and extinction-level events. From this point, there was a new heaviness to all the talk, and an irascibility among the hosts that had not been there before. Everything was sloppier and more discursive. Abrupt jumps in the recordings indicate that much had been edited out. At one point, Gary picked a fight with Diana over something unexplained. Franklin vamped and chucked and jived until it all calmed down. Love Lives was funny and informative, but it was also elusive and strange in a way. After listening to an hour of their conversations twice a month for three years, a listener might feel that he knows these people pretty well, that they're almost his friends, but that is not the case. We know nothing of their backgrounds, little even of our hosts' relationships. How did these three meet? For what purpose did they choose to create this podcast, and why opt to name it after dinosaurs? Their voices arise from someplace mysterious, and they chat passionately to each other without it feels any reference to an audience. It is intended for itself. It is not about you. The final episode, Velociraptor, seems to lack any point at all. 
ranging from a free-form discussion of the Jurassic Park films to an epic Franklin riff about Dale Earnhardt Jr. And near the end, apropos of apparently nothing and slowing the velocity even further, Diana shares a new poem she has written, a close adaption of Wallace Stevens's famous 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. I do not remember her ever attempting a similar pastiche before this. Her poetry had never been what I would term confessional, but this one felt singularly indirect. With your permission, I will share it with you now. This is Diana's poem. Among twenty green mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the dinosaur. I intended to love you like a kiss between dinosaurs. The dinosaur loomed above the museum floor. Bones were outside us, oil inside us. A man and a woman enter the train car. A man and a woman and a dinosaur drive the engine. The child turns the pages, full of robed and bearded men, women with long hair like her mother, the water rising like a bath, and the smiling dinosaur. Impermanent as chalk erased yesterday, the slate not yet washed forms a palimpsest, the lungs are tickled by the parable, and the finger traces a dinosaur. O dinosaurs of urban delivery, surely you thrill at such velocity. When you unfold from the driver's seat, do you lumber dumbly like your parents and nudge the doorbell with your armored face? I know poison and razors and thrills of ideation, but I know, too, that the dinosaur is involved in what I know. When the dinosaur took the stage, it preened its feathers and flexed and licked the teleprompter. Lovely wings of leather, kite stretched for the benefit of the mouth, a scrabble of brown in the twilight, cries out, once. I rode with you, my love, once, on the subway in the smog. Twice a fear pierced me, and I archaeologized my womb because I could not bear your dinosaurs. The voices keep on flowing, always on and on, about the f***ing dinosaurs. It was evening all year. The sky was a sky of rock. When it dawned, it was the age of iron. I cramped up and watched the dinosaur claw my clothes to rags. There had been no indication that this was to be the final episode, but several months went by with no more forthcoming. Eventually, Gary posted a brief note in the Facebook group saying only that the podcast had been permanently retired And thank you to all of us, the show's loyal fans. That page has since been deleted, and the episode archives have been removed from iTunes and Stitcher, thus bringing to a frustrating end what I had hoped to be an inspiring avenue of study. Thank you, and good night. And welcome to round five, The Death Zone. This time around, each of us are going to champion our cause in our belief of which doctor in the new series has had the best first five episodes. I'm going to throw out the 11th Doctor. You're going to throw him out? Not at all. I love the 11th Doctor, and I am going to argue that he had the best first five episode run. And that is the 11th Hour 
followed by The Beast Below, Victory of the Daleks, The Time of Angels, and Flesh and Stone. There is one dog in there, and that is Victory of the Daleks, and one underrated episode, The Beast Below, and I think three real classics of the Matt Smith era with The Eleventh Hour, The Time of the Angels, and Flesh and Stone. I recognize those titles as episodes I have seen. (laughs) While I agree that those are really good episodes, I inevitably have to say that once my view on sort of how they were taking Doctor Who and what direction it was going really colored my introduction to any Doctor thereafter, especially if it was another pretty boy. Um, So for me, my first favorite five are the Ninth Doctor, not because they, I could list them, but I'm not going to because it wasn't really that they were particularly great episodes. Well, that's a convenient argument. They're, 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 it is a brand new thing, and they aren't afraid to be mm-hmm. ridiculous, mm-hmm. and they aren't afraid to try big, new, weird ideas like, you know, fat that comes off your body or people that zip out of suits. Like, they don't have anything to lose in these episodes. And so there's something very fresh about that. You know, they're starting off the ground running, but I don't feel like they're worried about what's coming next. They're just like, well, maybe this is going to work, and uh, let's see what happens if you like this. Um, And I also felt like we got a very new doctor. Like, he was unlike any doctor that I'd, I'd seen before. There was a a bitterness isn't quite the right word, but there was a darkness to him that I hadn't really seen that I really loved for the first and only time in a really long time, a companion that the Doctor was not yet in love with. Um, (laughs) And and so as the series goes on, I just long for the days of freshness and silliness and newness. And Ariel points out a very different approach to this decision-making process, and I see that you're coming from it from an experiential almost memory of it. Yes. And I totally agree with you in that way. I, I'm, I'm looking back Writing episode wise, by episode, Yes, but I totally see where you're coming from. And for listeners who might not remember, uh, the first five episodes of The Ninth Doctor are Rose, The End of the World, The Unquiet Dead, Aliens of London, and World War Three. And that is really the template for a lot of the new series first seasons of First Doctors, where you're going into the past, uh, into the far future, and then modern Earth for an alien invasion Usually of some kind. Usually with a two-parter in there somewhere. Yep. What do you think, Kelvin? I'm in the same boat. It was between the Ninth Doctor and the Eleventh Doctor, and I think I'm going to go with the Eleventh Doctor, and, and I'm trying like mad to think of <laughs> something to say that would be different from what you said. And I really can't come up with any. Well, to give it the experiential twist that yeah. I think... Ariel gave the Ninth Doctor, like, after the David Tennant era, which I was not terribly fond of, Matt Smith's first run of episodes really rejuvenated my interest in Doctor Who. Matt Smith was basically like a retcon of the Tenth Doctor for me. Yeah. This is how I see a young actor portraying the role a guy I love who is Matt Smith's doctor, um, I have to say. weird and didn't quite yeah. understand romance and was out of touch with what was going on, but was trying to be cool, and it really spoke. And to he me. was both old and young in moments. Like his ability to to transform his character, I thought, was so much stronger. I mean, I don't think I, I feel like all the other doctors have decided on who their doctor is, and they very much stick with that. But his, he had this wonderful malleability mm-hmm. uh, that I really love. And Peter Capaldi is still hands down my favorite new series doctor, but the 
11th Hour is, I think, hands down the best first episode of a new series, All of Capaldi just made Doctor. me want to cry. Here was this wonderful man who'd been so excited to do something that he had loved for so long, and the writing was just so bad. I think, although I don't totally disagree with you, I think when you look back on Peter Capaldi's era, the writing is a lot more inconsistent than it is universally bad. I'm looking at the... I, I although my favorite episode actually is a Capaldi episode. Which one? No one's going to agree with me on this. I shouldn't have said that, but Kill the Moon. Okay, we're going <laughs> to not have that discussion. I really love Kill the Moon. Because Kelvin I is I know, I know. Here. That's why I was sorry. <laughs> so, no, Kelvin, you can are we still every be friends? Yes, of course, of course. Okay. I, I, no. I mean, my favorite Capaldi episode is still uh, Heaven Sent. But his first five episodes, if you look at yeah. it, so Deep Breath, Into the Dalek, Robot of Sherwood, Listen, and Time Heist. So if we acknowledge yeah. that Mark Gatiss is always going to have a dog in the first mm-hmm. five episodes of any new Doctor, except the new one, uh, that was Robot of Sherwood for 12. It was Victory of the Daleks for 11. 11. Yeah. For nine, Unquiet Dead is not a great episode, and I say that even though Charles Dickens is one of my favorite writers. Uh, it's probably my favorite Gatiss script. Yeah, that's faint praise. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but looking back on all of Peter Capaldi's stuff, okay, so that was a dog, but Listen is a terrific I, I episode. I think it's an all-time yeah. classic it's of great, yeah. Doctor Who. Um, it is really opinion. good. Into the Dalek is fine. Into Deep Breath is, is kind of problematic. Kind of, kind of a slog. Um, and then Time Heist is fun, too. So It's underrated. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so I'm not going to yeah. defend uh, that run of five as being no. the absolute best. I agree with Ariel. I think Nine's run is the best, even leaving aside the the things that bugged me at the time, the farting aliens and the fact that they never seem to go anywhere outside of Earth. There should be nothing but farting aliens. <laughs> there, there was a, a, a sense there in that first, uh, when Doctor Who came back, that Russell T. Davis didn't want to go to Crazy Pants. Mm-hmm. So there's no alien planets in that first yeah. season. It's only Earth, usually contemporary Earth, or a space station orbiting Earth. Or super-duper future Earth. Super-duper future, where he could have some some goofball fun. And and a lot of that goofball fun I thought was too goofball. I didn't particularly like Cassandra or whatever. But Mm -hmm. looking back on it, it set the template for what all of Doctor Who Mm -hmm. was. It was exciting to me. Uh, It was more exciting than the TV movie was back in 96, where I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, I guess I'm done with Doctor Who. Uh, I loved Christopher Eccleston. I loved Billy Piper. And even though... I found some of the episodes to be a little bit ridiculous. I was like, it's exciting, and I don't know what's happening, and they just blew up Big Ben. And there's, <laughs> uh, there's a real palpable sense of excitement, and that was, I've said this before, but Russell T. Davies, when he does a, a TV series, he usually comes out of the gate with an absolutely stellar first season, and then it all goes wrong after that. That's how he was with Queer as Folk. That first season of Queer as Folk was absolutely tremendous. Everything after that was a total dog. And it wasn't quite that bad with Doctor Who, but I don't think he ever recaptured that that excitement of Chris Eccleston's first season. I totally agree with everything you're saying, but I just too, too, I'm going to say it again, even though it's three times, (laughs) Two? two episodes of Flatulent Aliens was just too much for me. I'm sorry to say that, Kelvin. I know what a fan you are of. Flatulence improved everything. But that okay, was just two, I'll take that over two episodes too much of for me. longing and love between the Doctor and any companion. Yeah. Counterpoint, Josh? 
Weeping Angel should never have come back. Yes, I completely agree with that. But I they do don't think, fart. Though, that I guess do, that's the point I'm we trying should to make. Do a, we should, <laughs> they we are should the do farting this, angels. but do it with first five episodes of The Companion sometimes. Mm. Because oh. I think my choice would be very different in that case. I think Although Eccleston, I mean, I just, I really loved his doctor was so fresh. Yeah. I think it's interesting so that we have split between a fresh start by two different producers. Yeah. If I had to go with the two best runs, I think we would probably all four of us agree: the Ninth Doctor and the and Jody and the Matt Smith. No, not Jody. No. no. <laughs> well, I, I would say I, that like know, again, it renewed my excitement yes. in Doctor Who. Is it great writing? Not no. terribly, but am I super excited by Jody and her lack of romance? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. What I liked about Matt Smith's run is we had that suggestion of romance in those first five episodes with Amy. But he was absolutely oblivious to it. He was not the emo guy that the 10th Doctor was, that he didn't get it, didn't reciprocate it. And so, again, I saw it as this commentary, like a lot of Stephen Moffat's, like, redoing of Russell T. Davies' era. So I'm wondering if we might just compromise this death zone, or do well, or do so, we have so, to call well, in well, Tony to break this time? Well, you know, between the 9th Doctor and the 11th Doctor is... The tenth doctor. So that no, <laughs> death before the tenth doctor. Tooth and claw, tooth and claw, y'all. Okay, well, let's for our listeners, just so they know what we are um, spitting on. The first five episodes of David Tennant would be the Christmas Invasion, New Which Earth, Tooth and Claw, School Reunion, Which and okay. the Girl in the Fireplace. Which is pretty good. Girl in the Fireplace that's is actually, awfully darn good. That's, that's actually, actually a pretty good. strong run. It's just that New Earth and Tooth and Claw are so bad. And they set the tone so poorly for what David Tennant's run is going to be. Yeah, I really did not like New Earth at all. And Russell T. Davies kept going back to New Earth. Yeah, I might be retroactively coloring those first five episodes of Tennant based on my feelings about this entire era. Yeah, I think I'm doing that, too. I'm not, though. As soon as I saw New Earth and Tooth and Claw, I was like, oh, I can see where this is going to go. And... I was rarely happy with Tennant after that. I do really love Tennant with Donna Noble. I think their dynamic is really good. I also just think she's the best thing ever. But that is the only part I go back and watch. Now when I go back and watch, all I do is watch the Donna episodes. New Earth is one of the worst episodes of the new series of Doctor Who. And Tooth and Claw is only better in comparison. It's fighting Tooth and Claw to be better. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I didn't hate Tooth and Claw, but it was like a little too... Trying too hard to be cool. And I think they saved Sarah Jane in the spinoff, but I was not fond of the I characterization hated what they did with Sarah Jane. Her jealousy? It yeah. felt really catty, and yeah. I clear that Russell T. Davies thought it was funny, and I thought it was just ugly. Oh, it was, it was yeah. a little gross, but it was the first time they had brought a previous companion or really leaned into the continuity. Yeah. Yes, so and then right. they did that with her. I was I like, mean, she deserves better than that. It was kind of a wash for me, because it's like, ah, I don't really approve of this, but I'm happy that they got List Laden back, and plus it's got Giles in it, and blah, blah, blah. So, of those first five, maybe that's somewhere in the middle, there are two bad ones, but Girl in the Fireplace is it's quite phenomenal. good. I love that one. Tenon's introduction in the Christmas Invasion is pretty good. It is. Um, but it's still the love of the Doctor, damn it. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to get behind Calvin on this one. Because I, I think Eccleston, it has ex- I wish Eccleston had done another year. I, I, I just, my, I'm missing that year. Biggest, that is my, my biggest, biggest regret. Yeah. My yeah. biggest single regret about New Who is that there, there was only one season of Eccleston. Because I'll know. say this about Eccleston is he tended to act against Russell T. Davies' scripts. 
I can't believe I'm going to say this, but if you put him in New Earth or Tooth and Claw, I think it would be better. Like something that Russell Davies clearly wrote to be a big over the top line, he would bring it down and do it very understated. Mm-hmm. The way he would throw it on the side was so great. He didn't need to stop and make this big delivery of a line. He would throw something over his shoulder as he was running, and it would be so much wittier than mm-hmm. than any of the stuff yeah. that was to follow. And that's probably what you're responding to in Matt Smith, too, as a reaction yeah. against David Tenner. Always being at 10 or 11, yep. Matt Smith could modulate a lot, yep. a lot better than that. I feel like David Tenner was on a lot of cocaine. <laughs> I think it was just him. Yeah, <laughs> the funny thing, of, I say this every time. I love David Tennant. I think he's terrific in everything I've ever seen him in, in except Doctor Who. Yeah. David, you know, he talks so much about how he was such a fanboy, and I think that really affects his performance. I like Jodie's version of David Tennant better than I liked David Tennant. I would agree. She's got that same curiosity, but it's more understated. So well, maybe that's the thing we can all agree on. So we're agreed, then. It's Jody's episode. <laughs> no. No, no. Sadly, no. Not even close. We noticed we didn't discuss that. And it's not Jodie Whittaker's fault. No, it's not at brilliant. all. Not She's at all. brilliant. I always get a little frustrated when, like, the actor playing the doctor is, like, the key defining thing of the entire era. And not... Yeah. Literally all happened. other elements that go into the show. We still have five more episodes, either three or four more new writers, so we can hang in there. There might be a classic waiting to happen. But until then, what are we going to do about this tie in the death zone, damn it? Are we going to agree to just have a tie? We can do that. You can't tie in the death zone. Well, it's the death zone. Can we make a suicide pact? I mean, I can make an argument best writing over best performance. I'd be willing to, like, maybe come to that agreement and say that I think maybe the writing with Eleven is better. Mm-hmm. But my heart won't leave nine. Traitor. No, no, no. no. Uh, I think we need to go to the tech guy to call this tie. Oh, <laughs> Get on mic, Tony. sitting there quietly hoping that we won't do this to him. Or also just edit your voice in, going, It's the 11th Doctor, this is Tony talking. <laughs> My God, that was the best Tony impression I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, listeners, you can't see this, but he is torn. <laughs> he is fidgeting. It's... He's looking off into the distance. Sweating bullets. You know, I'll go with Matt Smith on this one because... <gasps> I like the beginning of Matt Smith a lot, but it goes kind of bad towards the end. So that is the part of Matt Smith that I enjoy the most, is the beginning of his run. And Chris Eccleston has such a short run that it's kind of that context thing you were talking about of it sets up good things, but it's so short. But the Matt Smith run has inconsistencies, but that first part is so enjoyable that you kind of enjoy it more because it is so good. You're a wise man, Tony. I refuse to accept this result. I offered you a tie, man, and you wouldn't take it. Because the tie was not a tie. Yeah, sure. It was a settling on something none of us wanted. <laughs> anyway, I think the point and is... Georgia we Secretary of State Tony Carnet administer the results of this and see where you're at. Russian hacking! Should I just turn Pat's mic off for the rest of this? Oh, please do. I didn't realize it was on. (laughs) And I think this has drawn us to the conclusion of our podcast. For those of you who are still listening to us ramble on, I'm Ariel. I'm Pat. Oh, wait, I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. 
And we are saying... Get off my world! March 8th is International Women's Day, Pat. What? Oh. Oh. Where were you looking that you didn't get International Women's Day is coming up on March 8th? Well, it's Wikipedia. I'm scrolling through hundreds of days. I just... I think uh, you're on like Stormfront. International Women's Day. International Women's Day. You know, like bad usually. Yeah, like I do. International Women's Day is literally. It's literally the last thing referenced on that page, except for International Women's Collaboration Brew Day. Well, that's what I'm interested in. Women's Collaboration Brew Day sounds interesting.